Our first podcast was with Dr. Mike Naughton, originally published on January 20th. Because we've been very busy preparing for our annual conference the first week of October, we thought we'd rebroadcast the podcast. Dr. Mike Naughton is going to be giving one of our six lightning talks on Friday, October 5th. Next week, he'll be sharing about three habits of leisure that get work right. We plan to broadcast it in the near future. So here's the original interview entitled Good Goods, Good Work, and Good Wealth. Welcome to the 9 to 5 podcast, conversations with Christians about lives of faith, integrity, and excellence at work. They are from Christians in Commerce, a ministry supporting and encouraging men and women to be Christ in their workplaces. We hope you enjoy this episode. So today we're talking with Dr. Michael Naughton, and uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce you to our audience. Sure. I'm the uh, director of the Center for Catholic Studies at the University of Minnesota, University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. Um, I've been here over 25 years, and the center is the oldest and largest of its kind in the country, which is an attempt to uh, engage <clears throat> the importance of um, the incarnation and in terms of uh, theology and its relationship uh, to all sorts of disciplines, philosophy, literature, law, business, uh, and others. Well, let's apply it to uh, kind of the topic of our podcast, which is the workplace, where most of us spend 60% of our waking hours. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about uh, where, where, the pro- where work fits into our life. Sure. Um, you know, if we think about, uh, you know, we're coming up on Christmas here pretty soon, and when we think about the incarnation, we think about God is with us, right? Um, Emmanuel. And that's, I, I think, in many respects, one of the heart of the messages of the Christian, uh, Christian story, that God is with us. So when we speak about, well, what is our relationship between faith and work? It's not that I bring faith in the work. I don't bring God in the work. God is in my work. <laughs> Do I have the eyes to see God? And um, so that's the, the idea. This is not an extrinsic, imposing reality. This is rather a reality is, do I have eyes to see? And that's often the challenge for many of us. When we go into particular places, we don't see the deeper reality that's occurring. And so our faith, in a sense, creates a high bar for us. God is asking a lot out of us. So that, I would say, is the kind of principal message when we think about the relationship between faith and work, God and work, it's not that I'm imposing something. It's not that I'm bringing something. It's not that it's already there. I just have to see it and cooperate with it. So that would raise the question, so visibly, what would I see? Well, let me, let me maybe put it this way. Um, what I would say is maybe the easier question is in order to get at virtue, it's a little bit easier to get at vice. <laughs> And so what do I not see and what causes that problem? And in the tradition, it talks about compartmentalization, the divided life, the split personality. And often one of the ways that we fall through with this is that we fall into a world where we have two different standards. We have one standard in terms of our faith and what we do, and one standard that goes with our work. And we don't even know that it's kind of operating. Maybe a story could be helpful. Um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago uh, in a blue-collar neighborhood. Both my parents were Irish immigrants. 
And it was in the 60s and 70s, and I was walking out the door one day, and my father was somewhat tired of my shenanigans. And he looked at me, he says, Michael, Michael, you be a good boy, Michael. And I said, sure, Dad, whatever, like any teacher or teenager would say. And he says, but Michael, Michael, if you can't be good, you be careful. I said, well, okay, I think I could do that. Well, an unfortunate event happened to me that night, and I'll spare you the details, but my dad had to come to a Chicago police station and pick me up. And he, he walked into the police station, he looked at me, he says, Michael, Michael, I think you better just be good, <laughs> right? And I raise that because my dad and I had our own particular challenges, but we often live in a world that's fixated on being careful, and we often lose sight of what it means to be good. And thus, we have designated drivers, right? Safe and careful drivers who take home drunk and stupid friends. We have this idea called safe sex, somehow thinking that you know, protected, disease-free sex will make up for its unitive and procreative meaning. We have an educational system that's so fixated on test scores and getting into the next kind of area, the next school, the next area to get the right, right job, we've lost the love of learning. And of course, for those of us who work, we are, in a sense, somebody can be climbers. And we're thinking about, what do I have to do? What do I have to say? What do I have to kind of accomplish to get to that next stage? And that fixation decenters us from the focus on the good. And so that's often what I think occurs. We get so, it's not like we're doing horrific things, but our fixation fails to help us see a larger reality. And that's what faith is always attempting to do. It's enlarging the good to see that larger reality. A quick break just to let you know about the Challenge Newsletter, a monthly publication that includes weekly reflections, feature articles specifically about workplace issues, and an insert to share with your coworkers, businesses, and friends. Check it out today by downloading it on our website at christiansincommerce.org. What does working well look like? Sure. <clears throat> Again, uh, to uh, get this question, it seems to me that it's really important for us to articulate as clear as possible what is the good that we do in the work that we do? What is the good that we do in business? What is the good business does? And I would say there are three principal goods we should be mindful of. Good goods, good work, and good wealth. Right? Quick summary. Good goods are the goods, uh, the products and services that a business or any organization has to produce. Good work is the actual work that's actually done in the organization. And good wealth is you better create more than what you've been started with. We call that profit. We call it margin. In the nonprofit areas, we call it surplus, right? And that if you don't do that, you die, but you also have to distribute it well. So let me, let me go back to each three of the goods. Good goods. Creating goods that are truly good and services that, are truly, that truly serve, right? So that when we go and we, and we, can, we can misunderstand this one very simply, uh, let's be very clear. There's a lot of goods in the marketplace that are not good. They're bad goods. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, uh, you know, the easiest ones that we can think about is the pornography industry. It's a legal reality that is doing untold destruction in our culture. It is a 
bad good, right? And and that is just simply off the charts. We, we, we simply can't even consider this, even though the market allows for it and you get rewarded for it and it's legal and all sorts of different things. We know that's not right. But the danger for us Christians is that we tend to limit our understanding of what a good good is. Let me give you an example of this. I'm the board chair of a manufacturing company here in the Twin Cities called Rael Precision Manufacturing. And one of the founders, matter of fact, one of the best business people I know, his name is Bob Walstead. Beautiful, wonderful man. He was a former engineer, he was an engineer from 3M, left that, started this company with two other engineers uh, of the Protestant faith. And I have learned so much from Bob. But I do remember one day, we had a conversation many years ago, and he said to me, he says, you know, and by the way, this company, it's a torque technology company, so they make hinges, uh, particular lab, we did a lot of stuff with the laptop computers, now we do a lot of hinges or uh, torque technology for the automobile industry and for the transportation industry. And he one time says, you know, instead of making a, a hinge, I kind of wish I could have made a pacemaker. You know, we all know over at Medtronic on the Christmas party, they bring in these people who've gotten their products about how it saved their lives. It is a beautiful testimony. The beautiful thing that Medtronic has done has been phenomenal. Matter of fact, one of the guys here at St. Thomas, Tom Hollerand, uh, was one of the original people through that. He was actually one, it was on the board and the CEO of the company. Medtronic has done, but he was saying, I wish I made pacemakers, then I would save lives, right? Great impulse, fair enough. But then I said to Bob, I said, well, so Bob, what if we all made pacemakers, <laughs> right? That wouldn't quite work. We all can't make pacemakers. We all can't be teachers. We all can't go into the clergy. We all can't become doctors. We all can't become counselors or social workers. All those things are good. But we need people to make hinges. <laughs> we need people to make carpet. We need people to fix roads. It takes a lot for the common good to occur within our society. Society doesn't just function on pacemakers. And so when people are making hinges and screws and carpets and paint and all those types of things, they are doing God's work. Those are good goods. Those are goods that are necessary for our society, right? So we don't go to the barest minimum of things. We need to have a deep understanding that these are goods that make a society run. And thus, when you're doing good, you make a good hinge. <laughs> you make a high-quality hinge. You make sure it's based, it get, gets there on time. You make sure you get it done in a way that you promised in terms of the price that you, had, you said you would get from it, right? And you make sure it's a quality one. That's a good good, and that's what Christians should be doing in the workplace. So that's a little bit longer of an answer, and I'll maybe be a short on the. So the other one is good work. What is the, what is the, how do I work in the place that I have? And here, key to this for us as Christians or for anybody is when you go to work, particularly when you're a leader or a manager, your key thing is gift recognition. Because what you want to do is when you see that person working with you, you want to know what are their gifts. They're not just simply an eight-hour unit. They're not simply a functionality. They have gifts to give. And what you need to do in terms of the work, your work, is to give your gifts and exercise those gifts in the best way you can, but then to create the conditions where the gifts of those who are you working with you can also be exercised, right? And that's, that takes a lot. 
And first of all, by the way, gift recognition sounds easy, but it's really hard. I'll never forget one time I came home and, um, you know, we get into these, um, we don't even know it, but it's one of these kind of, we, we talk about, I was telling my wife about how I was really appreciating the gifts of my colleagues at St. Thomas, particularly in our Catholic studies program. I mean, uh, I have colleagues who are so smart. They're wickedly smart and they're really wise. And I have great admiration. I kind of wish I had their IQs, right? And I was telling her about that. And, and I was thinking, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about gift recognition. And she said, um, in her particular way, she says, well, yeah, that's nice, but you know, you have a hard time recognizing other gifts. And I thought, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you know, And part of it was recognizing her gifts, but she was saying, you have other colleagues who have other gifts, and you don't seem to recognize them. And I was kind of offended by it, kind of defensive about it. But as I thought about it, she was absolutely right. There was other colleagues who were not as smart, not as articulate, not as witty, and, but they had gifts to give, and I wasn't quite recognizing it. So gift recognition is not an easy one. And with that sense of good goods, most of us, uh, Matthew Kelly, uh, who's a very popular speaker, has a great line where he says, most of us at work have become Q and S people. We are people who quit but stay, right? We kind of do the minimum work, we get the job done, but we're not giving our gifts, nor are we seeing the gifts of others because we've checked out. And that's, a, that's, that's not good work. And the last one is good, good, good wealth, right? We have to be good. We have to create wealth, and we have to distribute wealth. That's what good wealth is about. We have to be good stewards of it, which is why we have to be efficient. We have to be frugal. We have to be productive. We have to get techniques that can actually enhance productivity, take out waste, things of that sort. And the second thing we need to do is to make sure that we distribute that wealth in such a way that is just for those who have contributed to that wealth. It strikes me, too, that uh, as you talk about all these things, each one of us has a role to play in that. We often think of leadership as being positional, you know, having to have a certain status or a certain uh, responsibility but we all have great influence over the things that are going on around us. So maybe you could unpack that a little bit more. To me, it just strikes me as all these things, like you talked about the gifts, we need to steward uh, the goods that we produce. We need to steward the gifts that are in front of us, the gifts that we have, and we need to steward the wealth that has been entrusted to us. Right. You know, we, um, we, we, uh, we, we helped uh, here at the center, we helped the, um, we worked with the Vatican and we wrote a document um, called the vocation of the business leader. And it was interesting, the word leader got a little controversial because a lot of people thought of leader as just positional. And you're exactly right. That is not what we mean by leader. Yes, it is positional and there's authority that goes along with it and it's important to the office. But leadership is about the exercise of influence. And one of the greatest things somebody could say to you is that you exercise more influence than your position indicates, so long as it's good influence, right? So it's about exercising influence. And so I may not have positional leadership, I may not have the particular title, but in the work that I'm doing, and in, in, in terms of what it means to do good work, I can exercise influence that can do good in what I do. 
So I think you're, I like your, I like your word. It's not just about positional leadership, but it's about having that influence and, and people see it. And that's why as Christians, we need to be witnesses. They'll know there's something different here. (laughs) Why is this guy going the extra mile? Why do they compliment? Why do they say the right word? Why do they sometimes make tough decisions, even though it doesn't seem to have any benefit for them? They're exercising that influence, which I think is critical. It strikes me, too. There's, there's, there's lots of different ways, if you think about it, the ways in which we can influence the environment around us and the people around us. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the challenges that when we all go to work, we all have to get things done. And so um, I, I run into this all the time in my own particular work is that I, I can sometimes focus on being efficient. Uh, and I can sometimes get impatient when I don't see the efficiencies there. And there's something right about that. You have to get a job done. But there are times when um, certain things happen here where I have to say to myself, I think I just need to take the time to address this because there's often, um, if I'm only focused on the efficient dimension, what happens is that the communal dimension and the relational dimension suffers. Now, on the other hand, I can focus all on the communal <laughs> and, the, and the place becomes highly inefficient. So I think sometimes there's tensions here. Uh, and one of the things about being... Um, being faithful as we walk into the workplace is that, again, we're not just dealing with one thing. We're often dealing with two things that often are in tension with each other. And it's not so much I have to resolve the tension, but I have to hold the tension together. Uh, and so I think that often becomes a way of, of seeing things whole. But the seeing things whole is not, you know, harmonious bliss. <laughs> it sometimes is keeping just those things together. So in talking about the role of leadership and influence, leadership as influence, every one of us in our jobs have some kind of influence depending on, upon what our role or responsibilities are. So let's go back to the concept of good goods, good work, good wealth, and maybe illustrate that a little bit more practically, regardless of what my position is, what ought to be happening, what ought to be unfolding. Sure. You know, one of the things about... Uh, uh, our faith is that we, we we get insights from a wide variety of different people. So we we have the teachings of our faith. Uh, we have those you know people who are deep thinkers about it, and then we also have practitioners. And uh, and this insight comes from a uh, a friend of mine who uh, I've gotten to know over the years, and he's a CEO of a of an automobile manufacturing company. They do fuel injection systems. It's a publicly traded company, and uh, he's French, and he's from Paris. Uh, his name is Pierre Lecoq. And, and it was really interesting. Um, he, uh, um, he one time talked to me about that an important part of his leadership. He has a principle, and he calls it's called the subsidiarity. And he talks about having subsidiarity leadership as a kind of management principle. And for him, it gets back to that question of gifts, because when he wants to manage in a way that takes seriously the question of subsidiarity, that recognizes the gifts of others. He had a very interesting exercise. As a CEO, he would ask the people underneath him, he said, why did you make that decision? Why did you need that information? 
And he would largely push him and says, why didn't the people below you make that decision? Now, there could be reasons why you should make that decision. But what he was concerned about was those people who were actually making decisions because they didn't trust the people underneath them. <laughs> and they were trying, largely micromanaging it. And he says, now wait here, are you, are you recognizing the gifts of these people? Are you giving them opportunities to exercise the gifts that they have? And so it was an interesting thing as a CEO of a publicly traded company, this guy was trying to exercise subsidiarity management by recognizing the gifts, which I thought was really interesting. Maybe I can give you one other example. As I mentioned to you, I'm the board chair of this manufacturing company, Rael. And it's a, it's a manufacturing company, so they have lines of, you know, when they have to do a different product line, uh, they would have to kind of make changes to it. And then they would have to get the engineers, the quality engineers, to come in to make sure that the process was right. And then they would do this. And in order for them to do it, then somebody else would have to come in and check it. And it, was just, it would just take weeks to get this thing done because you were dealing with so many schedules. And then finally someone said, well, what if we trusted the people on the line to make the changes? Well, people say, well, they can't do it because they don't know. Well, what if we trained them, <laughs> right? So, and so what happened was they, they, a different kind of way of doing things started to occur. Before, they would, it was all about command and control. The engineers are in command. They control it. They tell them what to do, and there's a kind of feedback system to do it, right? But that often was highly inefficient, took a lot of time, and it didn't work very well. And so what they decided saying, what if we teach, equip, and trust the people on the line to do what's right? And what was amazing was, was how much better, how much more efficient it was, but also how much better it was for the people working on the line. Because they started to, they, they, they knew that they were entrusted. This became their work, <laughs> And their attitude toward that work was so much more different than someone who came in, told them what to do, right? And then they went away from it. And this idea of that they know that this is now their work. They've been entrusted with this work. And the people on top. Now, that doesn't mean they're not accountable. You know, if they're, if they're producing bad, bad hinges, right? We got some accountability here. But what was the amazing thing is the quality went up. Right? So it became much more efficient, the quality went up, and, and it became more productive because people felt that this is now my work. This is why it's, it's interesting. Delegation is really important. We need to delegate things. But one of the problems of delegation is that sometimes when you delegate work to people, sometimes they know it's your work, not their work. But if I, but if I built the work and designed the work in such a way that I know that's their work, now it's a different kind of reality. And that creates good work. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You'll want to check out our website at workingforourfather.com. It's constantly being updated with new content to support you and others in living your faith at work.